and welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Chris Foytek from St. Xavier University, and today I'm here with Greg Agigian from Penn State. Greg is the author of The Corrigible and the Incorrigible, Science, Medicine, and the Convict in 20th Century Germany. So thank you for being here today, Greg. Appreciate it. So I guess, first of all, before we talk a little bit about the, well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, what the book is about? What is your sort of nutshell? What? How did how did you come to the how did you come to the the book in the first place? How did you end up studying madness? Excuse me. So, well, I, I for a long time I've been interested in the history of social deviance and particularly the ways in which science and medicine have sort of uh, positioned themselves in the modern period as being sort of intermediaries in sort of understanding it and managing it and, of course, helping public institutions of all kinds to help understand and manage various kinds of forms of social deviance. So, you know, my, my, my first book I wrote was on physical disability and the way it was understood in the in the welfare state, and to some extent, forms of mental disability as well. And over time, I've, I've been very interested and concerned with studying uh, the problems of madness and mental illness and, and the various ways in which uh, that's changed, our understandings of it, and the way it's treated over time has changed. It, it sort of, in a sense, came naturally in some ways for this to start to expand my broader interest in these these issues uh, into crime. I particularly, in a way, I, I kind of got here originally, I think, by really being interested in debates and discussions in, here in the United States with, you know, the increasing sort of emphasis that, you know, we're all aware of, the mass incarceration uh, that has right. gone on in the United States, particularly over the past several, let's say, uh, 25 or 30 years. And that sort of led me to wonder about whatever happened to this, what I would put uh, one author back, I think, in the 80s called the rehabilitative ideal, this idea that maybe uh, people who are convicts and people who are criminals could actually be helped, could actually be corrected, could actually be reformed, uh, because it seems to have been over several decades now a kind of a dead letter. And as I read more about it, I became aware of, of a similar sort of uh, move that's t- taken place in various parts of Europe, especially in Scandinavia. So I began to sort of ask myself, as somebody who does a lot of German history, what, how, how does this uh, uh, play out in a place like Germany? And what I was increasingly drawn to was an awareness that, that um, uh, the kind of period in which many people talked about there being a heyday of this kind of uh, drive to uh, rehabilitate to correct and reform uh, criminals was kind of a period of time a period of time that you see this phenomenon happening internationally roughly from around 1930 to 1980 uh, I would say and that to me I thought very interesting and I thought was very curious because of course in the United States, it sort of makes some sense. It's a period in which a, a lot of progressive-minded ideas and ideals are sort of being instituted and realized. Germany, however, looks very, very different 
in that Right, of time. right, and that it was very surprising. Yeah. yeah, and so I began to ask myself, do we see similar kinds of things going on in Germany? And if we are, uh, we're going to need some new kinds of explanations, or we're going to need to at least revisit some of, I think, our, our sort of assumptions about on which on the uh, the basis of on which um, this sort of rehabilitative drive was founded. And so that's how I got there. Really, was out of a great curiosity about these things, and then much to my surprise, I found yeah, there was in fact a, a, I think you can re- describe it as a kind of a, a great sort of renaissance in correctional and rehabilitative thinking about criminals in Germany during the same period of time, but over a very different set of of kinds of political regimes. Okay, great. What's interesting, too, is this fits into sort of the classic question about 20th century German history, which is that is it a story of continuity or is it a story of rupture? And where are those continuities and where are those ruptures? And you talk about some of those sort of unexpected continuities between earlier models of rehabilitation and things that the Nazis do, you know, that in fact are continuations of those. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how the Nazi era fits in um, with this rehabilitative model that you talk about? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think that's probably in many ways one of the more surprising perhaps maybe even more controversial aspects of of the book. But for sure, I think anyone looking at sort of the longer history of efforts aimed at reforming uh, criminals has to recognize there there is a a sort of a a long history that one needs to acknowledge, and that is to say that that sort of uh, reform uh, notions that, that... one might want to detain criminals and then in those uh, detention facilities, jails, prisons, things like that, one might want to take advantage of that as an opportunity to sort of uh, administer some sort of interventions designed to better these people in one way or another. That is something that goes back as far as the workhouses and poorhouses of Europe in the 17th uh, uh, century, to be sure. Um, And that ambition starts to sort of gain some momentum, at least in sort of uh, 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 official sort of uh, theoretical circles, philosophical circles uh, uh, in the 18th century. And then in the 19th century, you start to see uh, medical people, uh, legal scholars of various kinds, uh, people interested in the, in the nascent field of criminology later on in the 19th century, starting to talk about this and starting to think of a way developing um, some sort of system, or at least thinking through the possibilities of a system that would allow one in some way to begin to sort of get leverage on this this kind of idea. Uh, in general, however, I think one has to acknowledge that by and large, outside of isolated places, most all of that stuff is really simply confined to talk. It's confined to discussion. It's confined to thinking about the possibility of doing it and what it might look like. There are pilot projects here and there, but nothing is really taken on full force, and certainly nothing nationally in a, in a place like Germany. When we get to the 20th century, we start to see then the beginning of real efforts made at doing something along these lines. Um, and in fact, in, in Germany as a whole, it's in 1923 when, in fact, at least Prussia uh, announces, and this is followed by other German states as well, that uh, they're going to now officially uh, manage 
mandate that rehabilitation, that correction is the uh, raison d'etre, is the principal uh, goal and mission of prisons. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bold statement. It's a, a fairly progressive-minded statement, but it is a statement that is really more aspirational than anything else. <laughs> There's really not a lot in place to achieve this. It's a goal that, that, that reformers are aiming at. So it's interesting that that uh, it, when the Nazis come into power, um, this is still a kind of a goal out there, but it's not something that has been realized. I think the other thing is that what's interesting and important to keep in mind is that the, the people who had been pushing this ambition along, I think, are a bit surprising. When you look at the reformers of the 19th and early 20th, century, who seek to create a notion that prison is something oriented toward uh, reforming people and making them better and improving them, what you find is that that ambition and that goal is always, always, always coupled with a goal designed to also detain and preventively detain those mm -hmm. individuals who could never be corrected. That is to say, one way of sort of, I think, putting it is to say that the drive to rehabilitate has always, always been linked with the drive to debilitate, to incapacitate. Uh, yeah. And that idea, this, 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 this kind of uh, connection between these two things is going to be an, something that the Nazis inherit from the past, but it's going to make sense to them because it's all going to be able to be easily folded into the sort of race hygienic, sort of eugenic outlook on life. So in other words, what this plays as, and this is where the title of the book comes from, that basically the system is founded on, and then, it, and then throughout the entire 20th century plays along these lines. Basically, it is a system based on the idea of the necessity to identify and to segregate those individuals, those convicts who are believed to be corrigible, correctable, reformable from those who are incorrigible, who are irredeemable in some fashion. And for the corrigible, we will, we will sort of try to map out a variety of techniques designed to uh, save them in one form or another. And then on the other hand, a fate, um, a different fate awaits those who are deemed to be irredeemable. And various, each, each of the um, different regimes in the 20th century found or tried to arrive at a different set of solutions for those people as well. And so that, that kind of, uh, that kind of dynamic, that kind of dichotomy is put into operation by the Nazis already in their first year of, in power and is going to become sort of the model for everything that follows. Good. Okay, cool. Interesting. And I'm glad you talked a little bit about that title because that's, that's actually where I wanted to go next, which is, could you talk a little bit about some of these ways they come up with to differentiate between the corrigible and the incorrigible? Certainly there's, a, there's what they do under the Nazis. You talked about it being connected. There are eugenic ideas, but that evolves. So what are some of the systems and the, and the personnel that come out of this need to distinguish between these groups? Well, one of the things that, that is going to be a perpetual part of all this, and this was already there again in those discussions of the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, was that th this entire sort of project and this entire idea of 
differentiating these two categories of people is ends up becoming because of the people who sort of develop it are coming out of medicine and partly out mm-hmm. of various other social mm-hmm. sciences. It really ends up translating into a form of prognosis, clinical prognosis, which means basically forecasting um, what what kinds of uh, you know what kinds of of, of of indicators might we get from individuals and groups to show us or to at least lead us to believe there is a pro- good probability that X individual will in fact once they are released from prison never commit another crime and then you know the same thing about person Y what might what might there be there that is leading us to believe that this person when they get out might very well and it's very very likely in fact to uh, commit new crimes this issue about recidivism this idea of being able to forecast recidivism is the focal point and um, really there's a, a the, the most prominent way in which this is done and it's certainly the most prominent way under the Nazis is a system designed basically on the principle of having individual forensic specialists, typically forensic psychiatrists or people who are called at the time uh, uh, biological uh, criminologists, uh, most of them medically trained, who um, uh, do things like interview people. uh, And and it's basically the same kind of principle, the same kind of process of a psychiatrist uh, interviewing somebody and, and assessing and evaluating their mental capacity. Very similar thing and then the idea is is that one looks for or or or, or uh, across different kinds of, of of individuals one's interviewed before and on the basis of what other researchers have said sort of say well I see certain trends over over time and across different people that are indicators that somebody is is most likely uh, to commit another crime so for instance um, an unstable uh, household that they they come from from stable household, or perhaps if you're talking about adult males, uh, they themselves are the source of instability in their household. They can't hold down jobs. Uh, uh, they're they're drunks. Um, they uh, abuse their wives. Things like this might be indicators of that. Um, but along with that, uh, at around the same time, what emerges is another method that is um, actually quite popular in the United States already by the 1930s, or at least is 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 growing in popular. And that is a system that is based on actually um, the use of some fairly rudimentary statistical analysis. And there, what it is, is it's a system of risk factors. Researchers go in, try to conduct a bunch of interviews interviews with with uh, convicts then track their progress after they are released and then on the basis of sort of breaking uh, the biographies and the lives of and the characteristics of all these individuals down into certain factors trying to find out are there certain kinds of attributes certain kinds of features and aspects uh, in the his, in the life histories and and behaviors of these people that correlate in one way or another with uh, recidivism or with uh, people who stay keep their noses clean over time. And then what you can then do and what they are starting to do, they're doing it in Germany already in Bavaria in the 1920s, is create a kind of set of factors. And then what they were doing in a very, as I say, in a very rudimentary way in the 30s was then counting up the number of these points and then saying, well, some 
somebody who comes up and basically hits 10 points. Wow. It's <laughs> somebody who is probably irredeemable. But if they have three points, they're probably going to be just fine. And so that becomes another way in which this starts to play out um, in the Third Reich. These, these two approaches, in the end, are kind of, most researchers end up feeling that these sort of complement each other. But, but for quite a while in the Third Reich, there was a lot, a lot of, of controversy um, and debate between these two ways. There were great, there were these advocates of the sort of clinical medical approach of interviewing people. And then there were people who were uh, more fond of this sort of risk factor approach. And I think at the heart of that debate and the heart of that animosity, mutual animosity, was really, I think, uh, on the part of physicians, it was the concern that the risk factor model really didn't require somebody to have a medical degree to do it. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Oh, is that professional issue? a professional issue. I think they were really concerned that if this really takes takes hold, uh, in a sense, the the, the kind of privileged uh, status that doctors had, particularly in the Third Reich, um, would have been threatened by this system. So those are at least in, in the Third Reich, those are the two sort of ways in which people start to develop ways of trying to sort of map out the possible uh, the possibilities or the probabilities of somebody uh, uh, becoming a repeat offender. Now, how then, and you mentioned that many of these ideas were aspirational, but what were some of the ideas, whether they were discussed or actually enacted, about saving the corrigible? What do we do to help those that do have three points and that can be helped? So this, I think, is one of the more surprising aspects of of Nazi Germany. I think it always has to be said, I mean, the the great work in this area has, of course, been done by Nicholas Waxman, who has done some fabulous, fabulous work uh, more recently on concentration camps, but but before this on on, on, uh, prisons under the Third Reich. And without a question, without question, we have to acknowledge that, that the system was brutal, brutalizing, um, and that um, it it uh, uh, really uh, was uh, uh, oftentimes, and especially actually increasingly so over the period of the war, uh, increasingly took uh, an assumed sort of that 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 terrorizing and uh, uh, physically intimidating convicts was. Uh, really sort of the, the the default setting, if you will, of prison life there. So one has to always keep in mind that the presence of a kind of a rehabilitative ideal, a correctional ideal within the Third Reich, within Nazi prisons, always was being conducted within that framework under mm-hmm. under, those, under that sort of uh, uh, framing. That said, one sees a constant, a kind of a persistent idea that there are going to be uh, a core or a kernel of certain individuals who can, in fact, uh, be reformed. And people are, in fact, being released all the time from prisons during the Third Reich. And the system is, and the, and the, the Nazi system at least, is really based on a kind of a, a notion of, I would call it, I think I call in the book, a kind of a moralizing social hygiene that emphasized the notion of correction through discipline. Um, and that was the mm. idea, it was based on an idea, on ideas, in many ways ideas that aren't, don't, 
just can't be reduced to race hygiene alone. The idea that uh, people are all born and have at the heart of them a certain kind of moral character um, that emphasizes the idea that uh, virtues of various kinds needed to be reinforced. And the way to reinforce those things were through regimens of discipline that hopefully then will inculcate and reveal uh, self-discipline. So um, all of this sort of emphasized notions of willpower, right? These, these sort of very highly masculine hyper-masculinized notions of, of, of a kind of a strength of character that um, needs to be uh, forged in some way and can only be forged, particularly in criminals who are seen as, of course, naturally sort of weak-willed people, needs to be forged through um, uh, these kinds of regimens of drilling, for instance, and hard work and labor and these kinds of notions. The other aspect of that, of course, is that not only was discipline and hard work and even corporal punishment seen as helping perhaps to instill this kind of willpower in people or to reinforce it in people. It was also seen as the way to reveal someone's true character. So if somebody actually comes up short in all of this, then of course what it does is it shows one that maybe we have this wrong. Maybe that in fact these are, this is an individual, right, who is irredeemable. This is an individual who's part yeah. of the great incorrigible. And so the Nazi system was really based and, and really was, was uh, uh, institutionalized in a way that was very much in keeping with sort of broader um, uh, sort of cultural uh, assumptions um, and, institu- and, and, and institutional mores of the entire Nazi regime and, and Nazi ideology in that regard. Interesting. And I'm glad that um, I like it was particularly interesting to me that you brought up masculinity. This was a question I just taught a gender studies or gender history course. And we talked a lot about ideas of masculinity and ideas about discipline, disciplining the body. We were particularly interested in homosexuality. Maybe I should assign some of this. Um, My my next question then is, so, you know, you talked about how the Nazis inherit some of their model from um, the pre-Nazi era. Now things are going to change. Obviously, in 1945, you talk about how some of the the personnel that we see in the in the prison system remains consistent between the Nazi era and West Germany, but we get something different happening in the East. Um, how does that play out? How does how does the process of rehabilitation or or not, as the case may be, play out in in East Germany? Yeah. So in East Germany, what of course there is a, a, a real radical sea change in, in on so many levels uh, from from the previous period of time. Um, uh, there is there's kind of a, several different phases one has to acknowledge that go on over the course of the the, the GDR. In the immediate aftermath, right after uh, the war ends in those first few years, during really the years of occupation, there's a kind of a, um, a house cleaning that goes on, though not completely because, of course, they, there's, there's not enough personnel to go around. But there's certainly a sense under the, the Soviet military administration um, an occupational administration that that um, uh, this is an opportunity for a completely new way of going about things, and so in fact, the, these first few years in East Germany, uh, there's a number of, of figures who appear and who uh, take over the administration of, of places like Brandenburg, for instance, and, and justice uh, administration there, and and these are individuals. 
individuals who were part of the sort of social reform movements of the Weimar period. They now return. They now have an opportunity, um, and they themselves all are people who tend to be oriented politically to the left uh, and are at least sympathetic to a socialist agenda. They they are very ecstatic. They're very very uh, enthusiastic about the new possibility of realizing the dreams of 1920s and establishing a new a new system that replaces the old Nazi system that's emphasis on discipline with a kind of a a much more what they saw as a cutting edge kind of reform minded uh, way of going about rehabilitation. Those hopes, however, are dashed uh, in, in 1949. Um, um, it's announced that um, uh, we're going to go down a very, very different route. And part of this has to do with um, a new sort of canon that emerges in legal theory at the time that uh, concludes that crime is really a question of the fact that the people who are committing crime are really um, individuals who are uh, the equivalent of counter-revolutionaries, that criminals are really trying to undermine the, the socialist revolution we want to achieve. It's called the friend-foe thesis. Um, and the friend-foe thesis um, takes hold and really dominates the sort of any, any real discussions about um, reforming and rehabilitating criminals. The, the, uh, under, this, under the auspices and under this kind of rubric, um, prison life sort of returns right back to where it was before, um, a, a system of drilling, a system of putting prisoners to work, a system in which uh, discipline is very, very hierarchical. Um, that, however, then changes over time, slowly. Um, already after Stalin uh, uh, passes away and there's de-Stalinization in the late 50s, you have now the emergence of a new wave of, uh, of a new generation of people in East Germany who are involved in criminology, who are starting to uh, 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 sort of stake out claims of the idea of that can't we maybe, however, think, rethink this and, and, and return to uh, the notion that uh, a, a kind of a more cutting-edge, modern-aged form of rehabilitation might be possible. Um, the important thing in this is, is that that really gets steam in the 1960s. One of the great ironies of the, the building of the Berlin Wall in 61 and the, the real closing of the border at that time is that what it does provide is an opportunity for uh, uh, members, the leading members of the SED to say, now that we've solved that problem, seemingly so, of, of mass emigration, we can now actually focus on reforming inside the country. And so the 60s stand in really marked contrast to the 50s on this issue. The 60s, uh, the SED really opens it up, at least for a brief period of time in the early to mid part of the 60s, and say, we're open to lots of new ways of going about this. And for the first time, really, in any serious way, the other thing they do is they say, what we want to do is we want to hear from psychologists. We want to hear from mm -hmm. psychiatrists. We want to hear from sociologists. We want you folks to tell us about how we might build a bold new system in East Germany that will be the envy of the world world. And that's when you see this kind of really grand renaissance in East Germany in the idea of rethinking prison and putting it on a, on a rehabilitative footing. Now, 
throughout all of this, there's this idea that we, we talked a little bit about earlier, but I want to come back to of preventative detention or indefinite detention. Um, what does that look like? So what happens to the incorrigible? You know, we get this discipline, for example, you talked about the discipline to bring out one's true character. But what happens if they're if the true character has been brought out and they're incorrigible? What does that look like? What is their what is what does somebody's future look like as an incorrigible person? Yeah, well, it's going to be very different in the different regimes. So, mm-hmm. so you can talk first about Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany is the one to develop this, and it's part of that that early law in thirty. Excuse me, in thirty-three, in which um, in which preventive detention is set up not only as a process but as an institution, as a legal institution. Preventive detention um, is something that that uh, it, 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 it's interesting. It's it's set up as a process, as an idea, before anybody is very very clear on where these people are going to go. The idea of preventive <laughs> detention is the notion that somebody can be determined after a period of time and after an assessment can be determined to be a habitual criminal offender, meaning that not only are they a repeat offender, but there is every indication based on expert testimony, and those experts are typically criminologists, psychiatrists, people like that, that these are people who clearly have a criminal predilection, something in them. I think the, the term often used is, is hung, some sort of tendency or inclination that is mm. inside them. And that hung, that tendency or inclination is so deeply ingrained, they will never be able to really be rehabilitated, or it's very, very unlikely. For those people, once that determination has been made, those people then are assigned into preventive detention, and they can be held until for the rest of their lives or in until the time at which uh, experts deem them to be now rehabilitated and they could be released. In Nazi Germany, that will be, those people will oftentimes be just left inside regular prisons or put into a separate section as part of the prison. Some of those people, however, will be uh, set off and assigned to uh, psychiatric asylums, okay, psychiatric facilities. Uh, this be- this is a big problem in, in Nazi Germany. Lots and lots of infighting between institutions because um, one, of the, one of the things I, I found in the, in, in, um, in the archives and in the records was that one of the things that was going on was a disproportionately large number of sex offenders and particularly child molesters were being sent to psychiatric asylums on the basis of this sort of preventive detention. And as you can imagine, psychiatrists who worked in in asylums were saying, we don't want these people here. We don't know how to deal with them. They 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 are a security problem and they're not the kind of people we have experience dealing with. And so that that is a problem. East Germany, however, doesn't have preventive detention. Um, they they deem it to not to be unconstitutional, and so they don't have a system of preventive detention, which creates all sorts of problems for them because they retain this notion of dividing up their population, their criminal, their convict population into incorrigibles and incorrigibles, but they don't really have a place for the incorrigible. So what they end up engaging in is what I refer to as a workaround. Uh, the method that is right. probably most common is to do 
uh, just what I described, but is something that actually is common to this very day in the United States, where we too, we don't have preventive detention, but it exists uh, in, in a kind of more as an open secret, and that is institutionalizing people in psychiatric facilities. Uh, this, is, this, is, this was the most common mm-hmm. way of dealing with the problem in East Germany. We can't leave you necessarily in prison forever uh, based on the way in which sentencing works. But what we can do is sort of with a, nick, uh, with, a, with a wink and a nod, we can sit there and say, you know, this person, however, suffers from certain psychopathologies. Uh, we're going to have to keep them into a, in a psychiatric facility, perhaps a, a facility for the criminally mentally insane. Um, and that's the way they solve the problem. West Germany does preserve uh, preventive detention and keeps it. Um, and so they're able to sort of follow along and continue along that path that had been first established under the Third Reich. And there what, what gets established is, on one hand, a system in which people can be assigned into separate wings of a, of a prison or kept in the normal uh, prison population. That has to change over time due to certain legal cases. And so in the end, certain sort of special, special wings or special facilities have to be made for this very, very distinctive population of people who are in really in a, in a state of, of, of limbo, right? Because there's no end to your sentence. There's no sense mm-hmm. of what you need to do. There's nothing written in stone about how you get released. It really is only and purely left up to experts to decide on uh, when you're ready. And so preventive detention operates, and it's still around to this day in, in Germany, in unified Germany, as a system in which a certain group of people are sort of separated off from the rest of these other populations and regularly, regularly sort of examined and tested and, and evaluated for their uh, possibility or ability to be released into the general population. Now, you mentioned, and you, you talked about this just now when you talked about uh, how sex offenders often end up being warehoused in psychiatric facilities. Sex crimes seem to occupy kind of a special place in a lot of this discourse. Am I, am I right about yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. Um, and how does that? I mean, does that does that fit in with this uh, with ideas about what masculinity really is? Like, how do how do how are sex crimes get treated? Do they tend? How do they? Why is it they tend to get bracketed? Yeah, it's interesting because there's a kind of a paradox with with sex offenders. On one hand, I, I think it's 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 a couple of things. On one hand, sex offenders are seen as a Especially, especially dangerous. I think it's because, and they, they're seen as a, a, a particularly uh, a problematic threat to society. And that is, of course, because I think at the heart what they do is they attack uh, the, the, the most basic um, uh, assumptions and working assumptions in Germany, but you'd have to say just about anywhere, but especially in Germany, of things like the family, of the, 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 the typical assumptions and ideals about uh, the protection of females by male breadwinners and household, heads of households, uh, mm-hmm. the ways in which parents are supposed to be able to protect their children from predators. All, all of these things are part of it. And with that comes also that, that sense that I think is a tacit assumption at the time and is actually kind of, I think, very much the case today. And that is this assumption that people make that sex offenders must, in fact, be the worst of the worst and that they are 
they're a group of people where you should lock them up and throw away the key. There's no helping mm-hmm. these people. They're 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 irredeemable. That is balanced on the other side, however, simultaneously, particularly among clinicians and and experts of various kinds, that sex offenders may actually be among the, the uh, among those who whom some form of kind of clinical intervention might work on them and the reason is is because their their crimes are linked to their sexuality which means it's linked to their bodies it's linked to their physiology so the the idea then has been that perhaps there's a way of going about this adopting the similar methods that that one might do when trying to deal with psychiatric patients or medical patients of various kinds that they might similar techniques might work with them and so that is really the source of this idea that they seem to be a, a very very dangerous problematic group of criminals but on the one hand we might actually be able to uh, in one form or another get at the heart of that understand what's going on and actually start to maybe salvage and redeem some of these people and so the way that go, that works you see I think is um, uh, in the way in which a variety of different treatments are, are used and probably the, the thing that I think is most intriguing uh, and and uh, 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 most noteworthy is the use of castration the use of castration on on sex offenders um, the Nazis again that law of 33 makes that possible for habitual uh, chronic sex offenders, that they are a, a category of people uh, who, uh, uh, it was determined, were eligible for compulsory castration. That was only in those cases of individuals, however, who it was believed would benefit by being castrated. And so they, they end up having to determine those individuals who would be a benefit, they thought, from a, a surgical castration, and in, in the case of the Nazis, that surgical castration was exactly the removal of the testicles, was exactly what was uh, uh, implemented and planned. Uh, and the idea, the idea here was that indications from. Uh, other countries who had started to involve themselves in uh, voluntary forms of of castration on sex offenders had seemingly shown good results that men who had been castrated uh, didn't tend to commit new offenses and especially didn't tend to commit new sex offenses. And that uh, uh, physiological data showed that men's libidos, for instance, were, uh, were, were significantly diminished by the removal of their testicles. And so castration becomes a form of treatment. Um, uh, mind you, I think what we've come to think about is that we come to th- we've come to think that the, the Nazi implementation of castration was a form of an extension of punishment, but by no means did the Nazis, the Nazi uh, justice uh, system uh, consider it and treat it that way at all. It, wasn't, it didn't function as a form of punishment. It functioned prim- principally and solely, really, as a form of treatment. Now, East Germany 
makes castration illegal. They, they consider it unconstitutional. But West Germany becomes very interested in it. And, and there's all sorts of discussions over the course of the 50s and the 60s about the extent to which it's possible to retain it in one form or another. Um, and what eventually is uh, agreed on by the end of the 60s in West Germany is to retain the idea of castration, but A, first of all, to make it voluntary. And then B, the other thing that sort of allows policymakers and medical experts to sort of feel more comfortable with it is that uh, by, by the late 60s, a drug called Androcure, that's the brand name of it, um, an anti-androgen is um, a chemical, is, is um, uh, 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 developed and marketed as a, as a drug that is able to achieve the exact same effects, in fact, is actually more effective than surgical castration. Oh, wow. In, in doing that. And so that because because you're using a chemical, it's a reversible form of castration. Right. And this makes them more comfortable about embracing the idea of voluntary castration. And so then in Germany, following that, voluntary forms of castration are then legal and are performed in, in a number of different cases. And so castration is, is a seemingly uh, a strange, I think, to many ears, but, but is an example, is an instance of the way in which sex offenders um, are, are understood to be treatable in one form or another through a kind of a clinical intervention of some kind. Okay, that's really interesting. You mentioned uh, towards the end in your conclusion that you know a lot of these are questions and issues that a lot of different places are grappling with. What do you see as sort of the major, the major the German part of this story? What's really distinct, I think, about the, the German experience of dealing with these questions about rehabilitation um, or lack thereof? Well, I think I think there's a, a number of things. Uh, if I can, I, I'll get to that. If, but if I can kind of frame it in a slightly different way about the Okay. things that I think the germ what I've learned what come out of the German example that we learn that I think either says something distinctive about Germany but may also say something more broadly in general if if that touches on what you're asking yes um, yeah that's... I, I think first of all what I one of the things conclusions I, I come come out of this for me was to realize and to, to understand that the failure the failure of and the failures of reforming and correcting and rehabilitating, whatever terms you want to use, failures associated with these kinds of projects, because they all end up not working in one form or another, not working as well as people had hoped, or not working at all, all of these things. That this failure and these failures were things were, were, were not something that necessarily came as a surprise to anybody, that, that they right. were understood, that they were oftentimes expected, but that uh, one of the more interesting things is I think that uh, when you look at the history of, of, of correction and re correctional rehabilitation in a place like Germany, is you realize that um, both, I think, progressives on the left and conservatives on the right today who often look back and talk and think and can think about the, uh, uh, intuitively about the history of rehabilitation of convicts, I think are both wrong in, in sort of a base, basic assumptions they have. I think both of them tend to think that this stuff 
derived from a kind of a utopian, really optimistic worldview about uh, the ability of people to change and to better themselves. And I think the reality is that, in fact, the German example shows us that the people who pushed this along were, A, not naive, B, did not tend to be very utopian, and C, tended to be just as interested in uh, security issues and in protecting society from dangerous criminals as they were about hopefully redeeming and saving and reforming uh, uh, people who are guilty of heinous crimes. That both of those were going on so that the failures that people came across and went on were not only expected, but they, they forced and compelled these reformers of various kinds to create institutions like preventive detention and other things as ways of institutionalizing failure, if you will. And I think that's one of the more <laughs> uh, sort of surprising uh, elements about it. I think another thing is that what we see, what you see is when you look at the archival records more carefully and you look more locally at what's going on, the other thing you see is that the sort of high sort of viewpoint, the, the kind of, oh, let's say, think about the kind of work of someone like Michel Foucault and discipline and punish, the kind of large sort of expert discourses about all of these things, the kind of platitudes that one sees in, in some of the reform and the reform-minded uh, literature, the kinds of uh, policies that are administered by uh, uh, people in Bonn or people in Berlin. Um, these, these, have, these have an impact. They have an influence on the way this all plays out. The interesting thing, the closer and closer you get to the ground, the closer and closer you get to the everyday interactions between staff at a prison and, and prisoners or between staff or between prisoners, the more and more you see that those kinds of large, even, even if they were utopian, plans and projects for people start to unravel, start to not really have a lot of anchoring points for them. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because it's like so many things in history, is that when you get to that local level of real interactions between human beings, what you find is that the emphasis is not on realizing the ideal. It's not on creating a, a really, really efficient system, uh, a system that has integrity. Really what it's all about is pragmatism. It's about getting through the day. It's about, you know, this solution is good enough for us. And, and that, right. that dynamic, that dynamic, it introduces a kind of an irrationality to the system that defies the rationalities of people who are at this sort of more elite or top of the top of these hierarchies that are passing down these mandates. So I think that's one of the things that is is, is kind of informs this kind of culture in which um, projects and, 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 and ambitions and aspirations are constantly, constantly being revised, constantly being reinvented, and then constantly sort of having their hopes dashed over time, time and time again. It's, 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 it's in a sense, it's part of this sort of great game that, that in some sense continues to this very day, especially when we're talking about these kind of seemingly intractable problems like crime and criminality. All right. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, I guess 
One last question. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on now? Working on now, I'm working on something very different. So now I am working. <laughs> Think of the criminal. <laughs> I am. I, I have moved away from criminals, and I'm now working on a history of the global UFO and alien contact phenomenon. Oh my gosh, yeah. that sounds really. Oh my, I need to have you back then. Yes, have me back. I'm happy to talk about UFOs and aliens with you. That I am. I am actively excited about that. Oh great. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. And you've been listening to an interview with Greg Gigian, the author of The Corrigible Knee Incorrigible, Science, Medicine, and the Convict in 20th Century Germany on the New Books in German Studies podcast. You could download other interviews with scholars of German studies on iTunes or at newbooksnetwork.com under category People and Places, German Studies. Thank you, Greg, and thank you all for listening.